Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 17. This week we talk with Mark Cooperstein about Azure Active Directory, using Cortana when your phone is locked, Microsoft is dropping old versions of IE, and what ORMs have taught me, just learn SQL. Hello, this is Jason Young, and I do have a cold this week, so I apologize for my voice. And with me is Carl. How's it going, Carl? Pretty good. And then we also have Mark uh, from the TED team at Microsoft. How's it going, Mark? Good, Jason. So we'll give you a full intro in a little bit, but it's Mark Cooperstein. Um, We're just going to jump into the news right away. How's that sound? So, uh, Carl, what do we got here for the news? So this first one... um, I, I recently came across this just a few minutes ago, in fact, and this is something that a former guest of ours had complained about a little bit. Okay. Uh, Clark, Clark Sell, he runs that conference yep. and it's starting on uh, the following week, in fact. And one of the things that he complained about that as a conference organizer, you know, he wanted a lot of the features of a phone, but mm-hmm. he didn't need the extra radios and the cost that is involved with that. Well, it comes to... Um, we come to find out that on Windows Phone 8.1 with the new update, that it allows for de- device manufacturers to make Wi-Fi only devices. So this is something that, um, one, is really going to make Clark happy, but mm-hmm. two, it, it opens up the field for a lot of iPod-like uh, devices as well. Okay. Yeah, and that's, it says, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, you have to you have to send this over to him and see what he thinks. I didn't realize that this wasn't possible. I didn't that that must have. So that's what he was talking about, huh? Yep, that's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the manufacturers, it in, uh, includes something called a Wi-Fi feature pack, mm-hmm. which will remove all of the software that relates to the cellular-related functionality of the phone. And in in response to that, too, it's also more performant because there's less code running around. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, I, I wonder wonder how much that uh, you know that cellular chip actually adds. But you know, if they can come out with, if if you can sort of take the money out of that and put it into something else, and you know, for especially for kids where they're they're young enough that you really just don't want them to have a phone. This makes things uh, a little bit more interesting. And I like that we just keep seeing. I think we're seeing such a fast release cadence here too, where we're getting updates on a on a regular basis, and sort of yeah. and they're surprising us too, right? <laughs> yep. I, I mean, the other thing that this enables too, like you said, um, you know, as as a gateway for kids, um, you see it with the iPods, kids have iPods and they grow into iPhones. Mm-hmm. This will allow, you know, manufacturers, manufacturers to make, you know, windows phone based mini tablets or something like that. And they can grow into windows phone. Yeah. Yeah. My kids love windows phone and I, what ends up happening, I just give them my, my old devices. So they, they get to play around with those, but yeah, again, they have the, the cellular radio, which they don't use. Um, no. so what is this? You can use Cortana even when your phone is locked. Yep. So I knew about this at our last show, but I didn't quite know the details of how it worked. Okay. So what this is, is is currently when Cortana came out, you had to activate her either when the phone is open and unlocked and you uh, press the search key or if you use the live tile Mm -hmm. and then it would activate. Now what you can do is you just have to make sure that your device is on. So you don't have to have it unlocked. So if you have a, a pin key on there, you don't have to type in your pin. If you have, um, you don't have to swipe up on the, on the lock screen, but you do, you just long press on the search key and it'll open Cortana and make voice, uh, uh, searches and you can make phone calls. Um, if the phone is locked with a pin, it'll keep the phone locked afterwards and you can't go into sensitive areas of the phone otherwise. But, um, this is another, just a little bit quicker way to get to Cortana. Okay. Let's do it live, Carl. I haven't tried this yet. I'm going to try it right now. All right, it worked well last show. What is the current weather? I so can't see to it. connect right now. <laughs> so much for that. What's going on here? Live demos are great. Yeah, I know. Somehow I know, it didn't connect to the Bing service. Yeah, that's interesting. I know my uh, my cell signal is is uh, pretty much non-existent here, but the Wi-Fi is working. I'm going to try it one more time. What is the current weather? It's 79 and partly cloudy. Okay. So that's a big improvement because, yeah, my phone is locked right now with a pin code. And that was annoying because I'd ask it a question and say, uh, I can tell you that once you tell me your pin code. Mm. So that's good. Another good update. Uh, what is this one? Remote in your computer from your phone with Cortana. Yep. Now, the remote desktop app is uh, something that got updated this week. And one of the things that it got was voice commands. Mm-hmm. So you can say uh, remote desktop connect to 
and then whatever uh, the computer name is, okay. and it'll launch it right away into there. So um, once again, I'm a real huge fan on Cortana. In fact, um, uh, some of my next speaking engagements are going to be on how to implement Cortana uh, for those who, who who don't know how to do that. And um, you know, it's it's one of those things that's a it's a just gives your app a little bit you know, more customization, a little bit easier to use once people discover that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to use those whenever I can. So when I, when I found this, um, I use uh remote desktop, you know, once or twice a week, not too often, but often, you know, I might use it, you know, three or four times a week now that this ha- you know, I have this feature. Right. So remote, just to be clear, remote desktop added this, this functionality, correct? Correct. It's, it's the app itself that did. Exactly. There's nothing yeah, special so, with the phone. So everybody, you know, basically what, what we need to have happen is, is everybody who has an app out there, they need to add this functionality in so that we can count on it. You know, right now <clears throat> there's, there's things that I want to do with certain apps and, uh, you know, up until this point, I pretty much assume that they don't do it, but I think we're, we're probably at, at a tipping point now. I think, you know, a lot of apps have had a, added Cortana functionality. Yeah. Especially since that, you know, the voice interactions with the introduction of Cortana are more front and center. It's a little bit more important when you do have an app that can uh, handle those voice dictations. Exactly. Uh, Microsoft dropping support for old versions of IE. Yep. Uh, this was announced today, I believe as well, or yesterday, August 8th, uh, 7th. Okay. And what it uh, says is starting in January, 2016, uh, only the most recent versions of Internet Explorer are going to be supported on the operating systems. Okay. Um, it's going to vary a little bit with the older platforms, the ones that don't support the newer ones. But for example, um, on that date, if you have Windows 7 or higher, you, you can only run Internet Explorer 11. Okay. Now, for people that are a little bit concerned, like enterprises, we do have to remember that Internet Explorer 11 brought in the the compatible enterprise uh, backward compil- compatibility yep. mode, and that that lets it emulate IE8. So those uh, enterprises who made their internal web apps for IE8, they'll still work on on IE11. Okay. Yeah, I think that's so once, fine. Yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, we've seen Chrome do the auto updates, and that really hasn't had a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, IE starting, I believe, with 10 um, started auto updating via Windows Update. Mm-hmm. And this just, you know, kind of forces you to shed those older ones faster. Yeah. And and if something does break, I mean, then a, a, an update is quicker around the corner, right? I mean, that's just that's just part of how it goes. And, and to be honest, I mean, the web pages are already getting updated at a fast cadence. So mm-hmm. it's better if your browser stays up to date anyway. And and like you said, with that enterprise mode, I think that's I think that's going to make most people happy. There's probably going to be a, a small percentage that, you know, absolutely need IE 10 for whatever reason. I You know, that's. That's I know that that's one of the biggest challenges. I I talked to um, a friend of mine. He he runs an insurance agency and it's pretty small. Um, he's got uh, maybe ten employees, and they uh, they were using some web based software. And that company said um, it told they told them to use what was it? I it was um, Windows Seven. They didn't support Windows Eight yet, and they said to use IE Eight. I think it was, which was kind of funny because whenever you you know, and they told them to get them through Dell. So they they buy their machines through Dell. You turn it on. What's the first thing that happens? It upgrades IE to nine. Um, you know, so they and you you can't uh, as far as I know, you can't go backwards either. So these companies just across the board, they just need to they need to, um, you know, start to increase the the rate at which it, it, how they handle this whole process. I think the the old way of handling this was it, it just doesn't it doesn't work anymore. And a lot of people, you know, the, the reality is a lot of people are using Chrome, so they have to deal with this anyway. Uh, so let's move on here. Search for code easier now with Bing. I saw this one. I saw uh, I searched for something and I saw code showing up. This is huge. Yep. Now, uh, one thing that Bing has been better about than Google and other search engines is like bringing up like code documentation, you know, especially MSDN stuff. And uh, one of the things that that you know, is new with this is the ability to search for those difficult like 
programming language operators like plus plus or maybe the double colons for the C plus plus scope operator or parentheses. Mm-hmm. When when you're trying to search for some of that stuff, that's really hard to get in a search engine. And Bing is making that a lot easier for those uh, for when you want those searches to go through to give you the correct things. Um, the other thing, like you said, is it actually brings up code samples. Yeah. Um, from so if you're if you're uh, for example, you know, wanted to search on like how to increment a, a for each or a, a, a for uh, loop, um, you can actually type that in in natural language, and there's a good chance that'll bring back you a code sample on how to do that. Yeah, so I just and then it'll take for, you directly to the to the source as well. Right. So I just search for yield return, and it's nice. In the first example, there's a there's a code sample right there, and and I like it too because it's. You can actually just copy it right from there. Have you have you seen this one, Mark? Oops, sorry, was was snoozing there. No, uh, <laughs> there <we go. laughs> yeah, no I, I just started seeing that. I, I I've uh, used uh, multiple search engines looking for code examples. I'm starting to see uh, better preference to use the Bing stuff. So I'm, I'm starting to move in that direction also. Yeah, I, I switched uh, probably about six months ago. I just I said I'm going to force myself to do it for about a month, and and that was enough to get me to to stay over on on Bing. And uh, I like the I like the look of it better and, and some of the intelligence um, like these types of features. I think this is I think this kind of stuff is pretty significant. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it does take a long time, I think, to figure out what, um, you know, each each audience, what they want to see. But, you know, for developers, there's a lot of developers out there searching for things. This is man, this could save a lot of time. Um, and then yeah. the last article here, I don't know if you had taken a look at this one, Carl. Um this was this was this one kind of blew up this week um, a few days ago. What ORMs ORM so that's object relational mappers have taught me uh, just learn SQL. So of course that's it's a little little bit of link bait. Um, you have to do that these days. Um, but it got me to take a look at it because I'm like, uh, hey, I like ORMs. So he goes through here and and he he it seems like he he gave ORMs a shot and and he found a couple things that he didn't like and then he just sort of given up on them. Um, What's interesting in this, I, I just wanted to kind of give my take and then I'd like to hear what you guys think. Um, you know, back in the early days, you know, I was using .NET since it was in beta and in, in the really early days, what, what you would end up doing, I would go into, uh, you know, Query Analyzer at the time is now Management Studio. I'd go in there and I'd actually write a stored procedure. And then what I would do is in my .NET code, I had a little helper class that I had written that would make it so that I could write function wrappers for those store procedures so that in my code I could say, you know, call foo and pass in these two parameters and get back a value. And really what was happening under the scene or, you know, below the covers was it was going over there, calling that store procedure, passing in those parameters, and then interpreting those results. And that was a huge pain because every time you created a store procedure, that was enough work, but then you had to go over and you had to create this. So at the time I kept telling people, I'm like, you know, someday, someday you're going to be able to write SQL writing your C-sharp code. And it's just going to, IntelliSense will, you know, make Vis- Visual Studio actually look at the database. Now, I was actually correct. It, it, it didn't come out the way that I thought it was going to come out. I thought that <clears throat> it was literally going to be writing a SQL query, you know, right in line with your, your C-sharp code. But instead, we ended up with ORMs, you know, sort of a, a stopgap here where you have um, a code-based model of your database and you somehow have to keep those in sync. And then you write some kind of query against that. So in the early days, that was actually writing strings or or calling a whole bunch of different methods in your code back in like the in Hibernate days. And now you can uh, you can use Link um, uh, language integrated. Dot, what is it? Language integrated .NET query is that what it is? I can't even remember. It's, it, Link has been out for so long. <laughs> language integrated query. Okay. Also, the IN is integrated. Okay, gotcha. So you know what was great about that was that I could. I could query against this model and get full IntelliSense and then behind the scenes that would translate into SQL. And I, I actually think, you know, there's, there's people that don't like that because it does code gen, um, you know, or it does uh, SQL generation and that type of thing. But the, the, you know, the, the things, the, the scenarios that I've run into, I just think this makes just a ton of sense. You know, whenever you're doing sort of my canonical example, I always go back to is you have a form and it's a search form and you have like 10 different fields on there. And the person can fill in any number of those. Back in the SQL days, what we would do is we'd take all 10 of those form parameters, we'd send them over to SQL, 
And then we would, you know, it, it, we'd have like a store procedure that took all 10 of those in. And then we'd have to say, well, if not null or, you know, that parameter name and or or we'd have to put ifs in our store procedures. It was just horrible. In link, what you end up doing is in the .NET code, you say, well, if they supply that parameter, then I want to attack this onto my link query. So you build up this entire expression and then you say, OK, now translate that into a SQL query. And if you write that correctly, it's going to be, you know, highly efficient. It's actually going to be more efficient than a store procedure would be. So, you know, Carl, I, I know that uh, we have some background on this at, at, you know, when we worked together, we were using a lot of link. And, you know, we as part of our scrum process, as part of our definition of done, we actually had uh, rules or we had we had a couple items in there where we would say, hey, whenever you create this link, you'd actually need to go over to SQL and you need to look at what is actually executing. So, you know, the SQL being generated. So you're not disconnected from that SQL. And then you also need to run that SQL against, uh, you know, against a real database so that you can you can actually, ex you know, analyze the execution plan. Um, so that one really doesn't have anything to do with link, but the first one actually looking at what gets generated is important because link does let you shoot yourself in the foot. You can, you can write a five line query and I've done this. Uh, I think it was with like a nested contains function or not nested, uh, something like con contains and it ended up outputting, this was an entity framework, 12 pages of SQL. I actually pasted it into something and it was 12 pages of SQL out of five lines of link. Um, so that's sort of the anti-example, but that was because I was doing something in in my link code that was not a good idea in SQL. And it, you know, the computer is only as smart as what you tell it to do. So it was complying with my request and making it happen. It really should have said, uh, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing that, uh, but I'll let you do it anyway. So that's, you know, that's sort of my background with with ORMs. I, I, I think that they're, you know, the productivity that you get from them. Um, when, when you actually know how to use one and, uh, you know, there's, there's always cases where you should just go back to plain SQL, but, uh, I think those are far and few behind or few, far and few between. So I, I guess for the most part, I'm going to disagree with what he's saying here. I don't know what you think, Carl. Well, well I, I think it goes back to the discussion we had last week with, you know, understanding C versus understanding what you know happens in a higher level language like C sharp. Yeah. You know, a lot of times there's abstractions that happen for you. And that's kind of, you know, there's a similar comparison here with the ORM being the higher level language and SQL being, you know, the equivalent of C in this case. Whereas, I mean, if you understand what's going on in, in SQL, then you, when you're using your, your ORM, you can better understand what's going on when you're trying to do something. Mm -hmm. Um, and generally when you do go higher up, I mean, there are some trade-offs as well, um, with link, you know, I've at least had, you know, it's a little bit more difficult to do like cross database queries and stuff like that in a performant way. So, I mean, there's, there's always edge cases to, um, you know, all sorts of things like this, but it's, you know, understanding your environment and being able to adjust and making the right decision for what you need to accomplish. Right. And I'll give this guy the benefit of the doubt. There is one line in here. He says, thus, one is forced to ask, should you use an ORM for anything but convenience and making queries? And I guess, you know, that that sort of lines up with the point that I'm making is that that's what an ORM really that's the real value it provides. There there are there's usually if you look at something like Entity Framework, there's a list of, you know, 50 features mentioned. Um, but you just have to be really careful what you use, you know, with any you know, like you mentioned, any, any higher level abstraction, you just have to be really careful with it. Mark, and, do and you, it, oh, also it also depends upon, you know, what, what is the scope of your application as well? Mm -hmm. If you, if you're creating a big application where maybe like, uh, you know, dependency injection with I, an IOC container makes sense, you know, that may work great in that situation. But if you're making a really simple mobile app, do you really need an IOC container for that? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're just doing a, a very small one-off thing, maybe you can just, you know, skip that whole layer or maybe you could just ignore maybe or use the ORM, but ignore some of the optimizations because it doesn't matter. Yeah. So once again, you know, you know, what is your use case? What are your goals? Yeah, you're bringing up a good point. I mean, I, I end up, I don't do a lot with SQL these days because <clears throat> I'm primarily building for the cloud and, and, um, you know, that SQL has a place there, but a lot of times you're, you're interfacing with other things. So, you know, any thoughts on this, Mark? 
you know, I, <laughs> I was thinking about this from a different perspective when you, when you were, guys were talking about this. It's interesting. Sometimes this, these kind of tools are a test of a developer's uh, maturity and experience, right? G- given a Swiss Army knife, do you need to use every gadget on it or do you use the pieces that are really applicable to the problem you're trying to solve? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you can, you can use any tool badly. You know, ORMs have a place. IOCs have a place, to, to Carl's point. I, I think you're using them wisely. And I've, and I've used them in different cases, and I've seen good and I've seen bad. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it just depends on the problem space. So I'm being a little more generic in my answer. Um, you know, I use it personally. You know, I tend to use like AutoMapper mm-hmm. uh, for some of the mapping side of it. And I love the fact that I can get a predictable object map out of you know, a predictable state of my object when I'm done. I love it for that part of it giving me consistency but yeah clearly the problems and the issues you guys raise are, are, are spot on yeah okay yeah i like your i like your uh, swiss army knife example there you know i could i could go uh i could say well you know knives are dangerous i could stab myself but you know I'm, you're not going to see me like um you know cutting down a tree with my teeth or something so we have um, we, have, we have pictures of that yeah <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure that you know uh, 10 drinks was too much that night so uh mark um <laughs> We're done yes, with the news. Let's let's get into the the meat of the episode. So we want to talk to you about um, Azure Active Directory. But before that, let's give you a little bit more in depth in, uh, intro. So you're a technical evangelist on the the TED team, and the TED team is uh, uh, technology evangelism and development at Microsoft. And you're focusing on healthcare. So for anybody who's listening, the the TED team, uh, you know, I'm on the same team as Mark, and and we focus on on really. Uh, really deep technical issues, and we'll we'll work with with big partners side by side to, um, you know, to deliver, uh, you know, awesome cloud applications or or Windows applications. So you want to give us a little bit of your background, Mark? Well, I mean, beyond what you just said there, I just mm-hmm. uh, I'll date myself a little bit. Been been around for thirty plus years in the industry, variety of roles, never far away from uh, the technical side of things. Love coming back and twiddling bits, writing code, all of that. Uh, did the mainframe, the minis, and obviously the micros, and and now living in the Microsoft world and the Azure world. Um, love that stuff. I've been at Microsoft for 10 years all up. I was here in the 90s, took a break for a while to go, to out, go out in the real world and take the tools I helped develop here at Microsoft and see them applied to real world problems. I think that's something that's lacking generally in the software industry at times, is people build tools, but they actually never use them. Um, and that's kind of a sad, sad statement, but I'm back here now. And as you pointed out, I'm an evangelist and I'm helping customers, uh, bring their products online, bring them live and help them uh, deal with the problems and challenges of doing that. So excellent. It's a, it's a fun space. Yeah, definitely. So let's start talking about Azure active directory. What's that? The main what, topic uh, here. So, so can you give us a background on what Azure active directory is and why your typical developer would care? Yeah, I, I think it's sort of that uh, generalized question. I mean, what's happened for years, or let me start with a simple answer. You know, Azure Active Directory is an authentication infrastructure service provided in Azure to assist people with authentication and authorization. We do both. We'll talk about that in a little bit, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, why developers care? For years, people have built their own solutions, their own homegrown solutions. Oh, let me build my own database. Let me build my my own LDAP directory. Let me spin up, uh, you know, AD or Active Directory in, on Windows and do it that way. Let me bring up, you know, Ping, you know, if, if you want the uh, a different, a different set of tools. At the end of the day, most businesses and most companies are building product that provides features for, you know, their customers. Um, in healthcare, imagine, um, you know, a healthcare provider. The, the fact that you have to authenticate yourself to use their software is an expectation to protect access, but they don't make any money because they provide user ID and password. And so why shouldn't developers and, and partners and customers take advantage of the tooling that's there? The people spend, you know, we spend thousands and thousands of dollars, millions of dollars building out these infrastructure components and maintaining them. Why not take advantage of them? And I, I think that's why developers care. It makes it easy to onboard your application with authentication and authorization quickly. Okay. Yeah, we're going to go in a couple different directions here. But um, before we get too far, I wanted to ask too, because um, there's there's two different editions of Azure Active Directory. There's the the fr- uh, free edition, or uh, I don't know if we're calling it basic or, or what the terminology is, but then there's also a premium version. Do you want to kind of tell us what the difference is there? 
Well, yeah, I, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I mean, the, I think the basic version meets the needs of almost everybody, right? Most most people building software, building up an application for their company, um, or providing an application for a customer or customers are probably really happy with basic. And then basic, as you point out, is free. Um, however, there's, there are a set of scenarios, there are a set of capabilities where you want to have more than that. And that's where premium comes in. Um, you can certainly find the description up on the Azure website. But in short, if you want to make the login experience uh, branded with the individual company's uh, logos or artwork, uh, that's where one place where premium comes into play. If you want to have self-service tools, for example, being able to recover my password, change my password, add users, uh, that's another set of tools that come with premium. If you want to think about multi-factor authentication, uh, the ability to say, I want to sign in, but I also want to get uh, a code sent to my phone, SMS, and prove who I am, you know, do that second proof. Um, those are the kind of tools that come into play. There's also an SLA uh, component to this uh, uh, service level agreement. If you think about it, I think this is obviously misinterpreted. You know, AAD, Azure Active Directory, comes, you know, it's the same software, whether you're basic or premium. Just with features turned on, we're not giving a different version so you get an SLA. But we only offer the SLA in the premium version. So it's just a place to differentiate. And for the premium version, you do pay, and, the, and that licensing and all of that is on the website. Did I answer your question there, I think? Yep. Yeah, that makes okay. a lot yep. of sense. For a, a premium previous employer of mine, I was tasked with creating a single sign-on. And one of the first things that I had to do is I got these two big terms in front of me, authorization and authentication. Can you describe what they are and what the differences between them are? Because to me, that's a huge understanding the differences of that make it simpler to understand the rest of this kind of service. Yeah. And Mark, whenever you were doing your intro, I noticed that you you specifically said authentication. (laughs) Yeah. Authentic. Yeah. Yeah. I blur my words together there. Yeah, I, I differentiate or try to be clear. You'll also see these two written down, Carl. You probably saw it um, as Auth N for authentication, Auth Z for authorization. Uh, just a shorthand uh, for that. Yeah, authentication is the process of, of proving who the person is that's trying to sign in to, to a resource. I want to add, sign into my payroll system, my time reporting, or hey, I just want to sign on to Facebook. I, that process of authenticating is proving that I am the right person that should be accessing that system, right? And different companies have different rules for what it means to, to do, go through authentication. Authorization, in simple terms, is once I prove who I am, what rights do I have for that product I'm trying to use? You know, can I? Am I administrator? Can I change my profile? Um, can I see people's salaries? Um, can I change people's salaries? What, what, whatever the, whatever the, the rules are in the end game is. So the difference really clearly is one's about proving who you are and one's about knowing what rights uh, you have within that uh, system. Yeah, and it's it's very important to understand that distinction because whenever you're actually writing, you know, whenever you're, you're writing the code and, and going through this process, you know, those are a lot of times completely separated topics and and it's very important to understand that difference like like Carl mentioned. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's interesting you you don't actually have to solve the problem with the same exact software system either, same infrastructure. Right, right. Once I know who you are, I have an identity of you. I know your identity, it's unique. You know, it's immutable typically. And so therefore I can now look up in our system and say what what authorization do you have? And there's a lot of ways to solve that problem as well. We'll talk. I'm sure we're going to talk about those here. I, mean, I suspect you guys have questions in that area. Yes. So, <laughs> so for just to just to clarify too, um, you know, if I'm a if I'm a system and I I'm trying to authenticate you, um, basically what I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, you say you're Mark Cooperstein. You're going to give me some um, some information to try to prove that. Um, and then what's going to happen is I'm going to say, oh, yep, Mark, that's it is actually Mark, and he's user three. So like, like you said, then you can take that user three and then you can use some, a different type of authorization system to say, what does user three actually have access to? Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it over some, it, yeah, which is what we're trying to do here simplifying terms, right? I know who you are. Now I can go say, what do you have access? Are you an administrator? Are you a user? Are you a power user? Uh, you know, which applications might you have access to? Mm-hmm. If I want to present a screen of you know, different uh, in-house applications, for example, how do I know to show you payroll system versus time recording? Yep. I mean, yes, yeah, so it's spot on. And, and we, I think we overcomplicate it in trying to explain it 
at times. I, I've watched so many companies do the dance of trying to explain to their executives what it all means. I think the explanation is nowhere near as challenging as it can be to actually do the implementation well. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an area where getting it all right is there's a lot of testing that has to go on. How do I really know that I proved that Jason was Jason, right? So it's it's making sure those assurances are correct, especially in sensitive areas like healthcare or finance, manufacturing, where you can do damage because once you've signed in and you have access, and do I have the right levels of permissions? Am I is it all being controlled correctly? So the, the implications are big, mm-hmm. but the explanation is simple. Exactly. So I I know that there's probably a lot of people that whenever they start looking at this, they they get a little confused because there is a product called Active Directory, and that gets installed. Um, you know, on premises and that, that is what their, their users and their computers belong to. Uh, there's a directory of those. And then they also use that for authentication and and probably authorization as well. So how does this product relate to the on-prem version of active directory? (laughs) Don't you love our product people in the naming? (laughs) Um, yeah, so I, I know why we named it that. You know, at the same time, there's there's a lot of differences today. Um, the on-prem. Well, let's talk about the just the management of it. When you install Active Directory on Windows in your company in your office, you're typically doing it because you want a domain. You're setting up a domain. You know, mycompany.com or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and I want my computers to be able to authenticate. Um, to the domain. I want my users to be able to authenticate. I think about organizational uh, boundaries, my my payroll department versus my development, my engineering, the whatever, floor workers, however you want to describe it. Um, And and the the AD implementation is very, very rich and very, very complex. And you get to manage that. You get to take care of it. And you typically pay people in companies to, we being the companies, not Microsoft, right, to to take care of their directory because it is work about replication and making sure things are backed up are occurring. In the Azure world, we offer Azure Active Directory as a cloud-based service. Where you're not having to load software, you're not you're not having to manage the updates, you're not having to deal with, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, failover scenarios, you're not having to deal with data recovery. We provide all of that as a service. You in the simply go into the portal and you say, "I want a new directory," and a few seconds later, you have a new directory. You have a new uh, Azure Active Directory set up for you that you can add your users to. But the shorter answer might be Azure Active Directory today is about authentication. Um, it, it's about authorization. It's not about domain management. Right? And there's a lot of other features. For example, Exchange uses uh, AD for managing who the, you know, the mail list and the rosters and, and all the things that go on within Exchange. Um, that's not the case here. AD is a set of tools around authentication and authorization in very simplest form. So no, now that you've given us a background on maybe the differences between the two, can you explain how somebody would go about making Azure Active Directory and the on-premises Active Directory work together? Well, we can try. Let's let's talk about it real quick. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to introduce some new words now. Um, yeah, if, if you're if you think about uh, Azure Active Directory, let me back up a little bit, Carl, and answer your question first by saying you do not have to have an on-premises directory in order to make effective use of Azure Active Directory. Um, if you have a small company and they simply want to, to be able to join, use your software and be able to do uh, have authentication, it is very, very straightforward to set up a quick Active Directory tenant, we call them tenants for that customer, an instance, where users can be added and they can manage their users. You don't have, there's no requirement for an on-prem solution. Um, and then the application, your, your, your Azure-based application or your native application running on your desktop can authenticate against that Azure Active Directory. If, however, you are a big enough company and you have a directory running, you have an AD instance running on your prem, you have a couple of choices. You can say, listen, I don't want to maintain. I understand that my new applications I'm using in the cloud are going to authenticate against the Azure Active Directory, but by God, I don't want to have to manage two sets of users. I don't want to have to, oh, see, Johnny left, so I have to make sure that I delete Johnny from the Azure Active Directory as well, or I have a new employee, Sarah. Do I have to add her everywhere? We provide tools to federate between your on-premises solution and the Azure solution. The idea there being that as I make changes in my directory, they're immediately reflected or eventually consistent, however you want to think of that, uh, in the Azure world. 
or I can choose to do it more of I'm going to copy and do the updates when I want to. I'm going to synchronize my directories on my demand so I don't have to do it as, a, as an ongoing thing all the time. But so the ability to, to leverage the two is clearly there. I'll give you an example uh, right now where um, we're doing this uh, with one of my partners where we may have a hospital and hospitals make use of Active Directory and they have all their doctors and their nurses and their staff, everybody already in the system. And they're buying or using software from a, uh, an ISV, a healthcare ISV. Um, and the ISV has said, we're going to use Azure for authenticating users. Well, that's great, but I already have, I'm the hospital, I already have a directory. In that case, it's a very simple process of setting up a synchronization between the two directories. And as far as the hospital is concerned, all of their users are maintained internally. They, have, they don't have to think about Azure or they don't have to think about the Active Directory instance in the cloud. They think about their local system and, and the magic happens behind the scenes to keep them in sync. And that was probably a long explanation to a simple question. <laughs> no, that's good. I, this is a, <clears throat> for a lot of people, it's a challenging topic. So I appreciate you going into depth. So Carl, how, how bad do you wish that we had this, you know, a couple of years ago when we were trying to build something similar? Well, the thing is, is right before I left, we actually did implement the federation between the two. Right. So well, that, that, yeah. But there's also, you but, know, like you mentioned, you can, you can synchronize as well. So you, you can yeah. kind of take the on-prem portion out of there. Yeah. Exactly. And, and at the time, you know, that place wasn't comfortable with doing that at the point, but yeah, it would, it would have been nice if we could have just moved everything up into Azure and then use that going forward. Exactly. And thanks to my cold right now, my, my voice is starting to fail me. So I apologize. Uh, but Mark, uh, one thing that I'm curious about there's, you know, I can, I can take my, uh, my fortune 500 company and I can just, uh, have people authenticate against Facebook or Twitter, um, or even just the regular Microsoft login. So what, um, why would somebody pick this over using one of those? Well, it's not an either or. I mean, the, the good news is we're not doing, we're not excluding uh, the ability to sign on. We recognize that, particularly in the consumer space, right? The users come to a system with their own identity. Right? Mm -hmm. My identity, and, and I don't want to maintain identities, which is what we did. What a couple of years ago, we probably all had an identity at our bank. We had an identity at Facebook, for example, or wherever we wanted to using then. Uh, I have my email identities. And I, held, and I had to remember all my passwords. and Everybody has separate password systems. Uh, there's a bunch of rules. And what we're all learning and have been learning over the last several years is people just want an identity and they want to be able to use it effectively across systems. So in the area, if you so choose for your application, um, it, you can say, hey, I want to be able to sign on with my – I'll pick one, doesn't matter – Facebook identity. Mm -hmm. And what, what Azure Active Directory will do for you is we will recognize and allow you to say, I want users from Facebook to be able to sign in and use my application. In that case, the authentication process, you, you know you're hitting an Azure application. When you type in your identity, you know, let's make one up, Jason Young at Facebook.com, we recognize the domain is Facebook, and we will pass off the authentication piece to Facebook. And Facebook will say, hey, you, you, your password on Facebook – is done by them. We, nobody else sees that. It's all controlled by Facebook. And what comes back to the Azure application is a token that says, hey, we, we authenticate Jason. And here's some claims. Here's some information about Jason that you'll want to know. Uh, and then the application can say, I accept that. And then do whatever authorization or whatever processing wants to do. Now, I will say, we don't, we don't just do it all behind the scenes. With, you know, we don't ask you any questions. If it's your first time to access your application from Facebook to whatever it is, the application we're running, you will be asked to consent. You know, we'll, Facebook will say, hey, Jason, is it really okay to share this information with application XYZ, whatever it's called, in order to make sure that there's, you understand what's going on in that process so you're not being shocked or, or wait, you're giving away my credentials, you're giving away my data. And keep in mind, your password never leaves Facebook, right? It's never shared with anybody. It's, mm -hmm. it's a token that represents you, and the software is smart enough through the, through the Azure Active Directory process. All the stuff that's handled for you, all that magic and hang, uh, magic would be the wrong word, I think, in this case. It is magical, but it's scary to watch all the redirects, everything that happens in the authentication process that's very standard, I say, with OAuth and all of those tools that we all use or take for granted. 
but there's a lot that happens there. But but let me wrap up the question with saying when you asked is we absolutely support the notion of consumer-based identities. We support the notion of uh, organizational identities, you know, like Jason at Microsoft.com or whatever. And we also support identities that were stored directly in the Azure Active Directory. There are rules around what identities you can use, but but in short, we have multiple ways of of re- recognizing Jason. Mm-hmm. And all of them are valid. And the and the application, what's cool about it is the application doesn't care. The application simply gets a token and says, we've proved that this is Jason Young. Does that make sense? That, 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 that's a lot of, again, a lot of explanation here, a lot of depth. I'm hoping it helps people. No, that, that definitely makes sense. Now, for somebody who's not coming from, you know, any old architecture, how easy is it to, you know, from scratch, you know, start up Azure Active Directory as your primary directory including maybe like using it with your own domain name. For for instance, you know, me and Jason own msdevshow.com. How easy would it be for us to create something like this where we could log on with that msdevshow credentials? So I think there's a couple pieces to the puzzle. I, the short answer is I think it's very straightforward and very simple. Um, of course, uh, the devil's in the details, right? Um, so let me, let me answer you and, I, and we can use this to dive down. The, the process of setting up your directory is pretty straightforward. You go into the Azure portal. Uh, assuming you have a subscription there, you, you're using Azure. The direct, creating a directory might take you 30 seconds, maybe less. Um, once the directory is set up, you can say, oh, and oh, by the way, my directory uh, is connected to this domain. And you can add the domain. We're, but we're clever, just like a lot of other people think about this problem. I don't, don't trust you. Uh, I, you told me the name is, you know, this MS Dev Show uh, or the MS Dev Show, sorry, um, is a domain. But you actually have to go out to your domain provider and you're going to have to put some records into, into your DNS in order to really validate and prove, verify would be the word here, that, that Microsoft requires you to verify that that domain actually belongs to you and you have the authority to map it to that directory. That way we get out of the scenarios where people are afraid that somebody will hijack their domain name, whatever. You can't do that. It's all about so what they, have, Go ahead. Sorry. So what you essentially have to do is Microsoft is giving us a secret. And, and, and in order for us to prove that we know that secret, we have to put it in our own DNS. And once it sees that that secret matches up, then it knows that, hey, we can associate that dona- domain name with this Azure Active Directory. Right. Yeah. It's, yes. What you've done is you've, you've you've proved to us that you had the authority to connect to your domain and configure it in a way to, so that Microsoft can make use of it. So you 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 validated. You have verified that you ha- you are the right person with that authority. Yes. Now on the application side, I'm hoping I'm answering your question the way you want to, the way it makes sense, Carl. That mm-hmm. the application side of it is pretty straightforward. We have a number of toolkits. Um, that are available for people to write software against uh, that, that make it pretty easy to say when you when you register an application, you say, I want to be able to sign in, right? The actual sign-in part is pretty easy, but typically you have an application that's signing in for you. You register the application with your directory as well, and the application is given an identity and a secret. And then what happens is the application, when it comes up, says, hey, directory, I am this application, and here's my secret. You've now, you've now proved who you are. The application's up and running. You've proved who you are. And now the application can say, and I require the users to authenticate. So in, in the web world, that would be a 401, saying, you know, prove who you are. Um, and it goes through the, the dance of authenticating. And, and, the ad, and the libraries on the client side, on the website, make take away from you. You don't have to do a lot of programming. You, the developer, you're making a simple request, say, get me a token. Get me the prove to me that somebody needs signs in. Excuse me, somebody is signing in. I want you to prove who they are. At that point, the system takes over. It does all the negotiations, and ultimately, when you're called back, you're given back a token that identifies that you're Carl. Right. So the actual programming model is pretty straightforward. The libraries we've built out uh, for .NET, for Java. I think uh, Jason, you and I were talking about that earlier today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- those libraries exist. They're in the mobile world as well for our mobile services. So you can, from your phone, um, they're available across languages. You can take a look up on the Azure website and get the data pretty easily and download the SDKs. But the actual programming is very, very straightforward, and we we produce a lot of examples. Uh, some of them are up on GitHub 
um, the, the Azure Samples uh, project. It has a bunch of examples around Azure Active Directory and how to integrate it with your application. And whether it's a single tenant or multi-tenant, uh, where multi-tenant means that people across multiple directories may be able to sign into your application, um, which, which is really powerful for the ISV community or if you're standing up software as a service, um, allowing different companies to sign in. So the actual programming model, the programming approach is pretty straightforward. And the, the directory setup, if you have all your data in front of you, you can probably get it all done in less than 30 minutes. That's awesome. <clears throat> so can you explain how, um, you know, we talked about the applications, but can you explain how organizations then can grant access to those applications? <laughs> well, my voice is getting worse and worse. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the question was getting harder and harder. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a number of ways you can do this. You can, you can think of this, um, and I'm not sure which level you want to dive into, but let's but let's kind of experiment with it here a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming this, so the question is, I've got an application I have running. So we talk about we've registered, um, and people can <clears throat> excuse me, people can access that application. We said we know we're expect people to sign in. Uh, I think you're. I think the scenario you're sort of hinting around is either going to be about authorization or it's going to be around multi-tenancy and what directories have permissions to use the application. Um, so, so let's take the really complicated one and we'll explain it out because I think it, it makes some sense. So if I have a directory where let's let's say uh, the, the scenario we used earlier was the hospital and the hospital wants to make use of a patient system uh, that my company, you know. Mark Inc. is is produce software that's running in the cloud, and and I want to be able to allow people at the hospital to sign in. What I really want to make sure is that they understand that that they want to access my application, and by doing that, they also have to give me their people's name. You know, I will have to see the per- people's names when they're trying to sign in, and I'll need a little bit of data. So there's a process called consenting, where a user or a entire directory says I want I I am saying it is okay for people in my directory to connect to and use the Mark Inc application the process of consent by doing that they're saying when somebody signs in the tokens will be accepted and passed to the application uh, and and along with a bunch of claims about hey it's it's Jason Young or Carl signing in or whatever um, that data is passed as part of that token beyond that it opens up the door and says, I'm, I may need some APIs to call back to the directory and find out a little more data if, if permissions are given for that. And there's also a decision that my application needs to make that says, hey, do I even know about this, this, this group of people trying to sign in? You know, have they paid their bill? Are they paying for my software? So one of the decisions we can make during the authentication process, what comes to the, my application, is not just the person's name. You know, it's Carl. But Carl's with this uh, Azure Active Directory tenant, and I get an ID, and I can I can just look up and say, have we pay, uh, have we given permission to this identity, this directory, to access my application? Yes or no? That's at one level. I get a lot of data. Then I can say, well, yes, but is Carl licensed to use my application if I wanted to do that? And there's a couple ways you can do that. Um, one is, you know, do they pay their bill and everything else? But you're maintaining your own systems, your own business systems, and things like that. And the other is you can take advantage of features in the directory to say, I'm going to assign Carl to a group of users that have access to the Mark Inc. application. So uh, let's make it, let's really theorize this out. Um, you're, the, the hospital makes a decision that they want to pay Mark Inc. for use of their system, but they're only going to allow 10 users. They're only paying for 10 users to use it. What they would do is they would set up a group. We, we work with them on that. And they set up a group and they identify the 10 users that have access to that application. So one of the checks that we can make is, oh, wait, are they part of the right group? Yes. Okay, that means that the hospital is actually given explicit permission, the administrator, for Carl to be able to access the Mark Inc. application. So there's a lot of tiers in here to, to you guys' question. Um, you know, the actual configuration of, of how you set it up is pretty straightforward. That's basic plumbing, which is what you'd expect the system to give you. How you make decisions about the application is really going to be about what the application wants. Some applications are free, and I know, I know Jason, for example, has built an application for doing logging, and right now he, he offers that for free. So he doesn't care who uses it, uh, and I, I don't think at the moment you even care if they authenticate, but eventually he may choose to say, I'm going to track who's using it. 
So he may require authentication, but he may not. But he may not, he's not licensing it, so he's not worried about any money changing hands. But there are other applications that are clearly dependent on who's paid the bill and how many users. Is it a floating license? Is it by name? So those parameters come into play and are very you know business uh, specific very application-specific, but the power of Azure Active Directory gives you the flexibility to make those business decisions because you're given the right, you're given the data in a secure way about who's trying to sign in from where and what permissions has their company given them, right, at, at, a, at a high level, and the application joins that with what permissions are available at the application level. Right. Perfect. No, that was good. <clears throat> Got another one for you. Um, whenever, you know, whenever I go and I, I've actually gone out and provisioned an office 365 account previously, mm-hmm. and I, I end up getting <clears throat> essentially a new directory. Can you explain the relationship between office 365 and AAD? <laughs> <laughs> if you can uh, still hear me. Oh, I can't. My, my, <laughs> my, my tongue in cheek answer is me. Can anybody, um, <laughs> the, yeah. So in, we just, I just hung up for another call. Um, one of the things that that people should realize is if they have users that are in fact using the Office 365 system and they get a directory, that that directory is also Azure Active Directory, um, and that means that those users, those same users, can sign into the application. Let's imagine you have an internal application for time reporting. So now I can use my Office 365 account, do my mail, do my Word, my PowerPoint, all of that, and I flip over to the application, my time reporting system. And my identity is the same. In fact, this is where the scenario of single one of the scenarios of single sign-on comes into play. I'm already signed in to, to Office 365, so as soon as I go to the application, the time reporting, and it says, "Hey, I require authentication." Behind the scenes, the system's going to say, "Wait, you know, Mark is already authenticated, so give up, you know, provide the token and don't prompt for another user ID and password because we already know that he's already signed in and his token is still valid." So I'm hoping I answer your question here in the way you're thinking about it, that the Office 365 tenant is usable with inside of Azure and vice versa. Um, but the idea here is that you, you also get the, power, the flexibility and the power of single sign-on. Now, you don't need to have Office 365 to do single sign-on, but in that scenario, it's a really good example of what a lot of companies are doing, You know, linking together their, their email, their office tools, and their internal applications with a single tenant. This morning, I was looking at Azure Active Directory, and this is taking this on a little bit more granular level, and you can add users manually in there. Now, first of all, is that a good option to do that manually? But w- when you do, there are, there are also three options, is to use a current Azure Active Directory, to use an existing Microsoft account, or to use someone else's Azure Active Directory. I don't know, what are the differences there, and why would you want to use each one? Well, so we talked a little bit about that earlier. Um, so the, the choices really are about – so when you create a directory today, um, by default, we're going to give you a name. Let's say you call your directory Carl. We're going to add the domain of onmicrosoft.com. So you're carl.onmicrosoft.com. So you can add users to that directory, um, you know, mark at carl.onmicrosoft.com, Jason at carl.onmicrosoft.com, and those are specific to the directory. So those are easy to add. You're not mapping any of the domain names in. You're not doing any of that. So those are AAD um, uh, users. If you mm-hmm. wanted to add domain, say my directory is also you know uh, carl.net, um, then you will have organizational accounts that are maybe marked at uh, carl.net, and that's okay too. That says the directory understands that that user is coming from a separate domain, right? I, I understand that mapping. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, um, <clears throat> I think the last piece on that one would be um, I can also map to other people's uh, Active Directory domains, Active Directory tenants, excuse me. So for example, I have one mark uh, dot on Microsoft.com. You can add users from my account to your directory also. Um, people, why would you do that for administrative access, perhaps, or I'm the serv- I'm, I'm the support department, or you've hired a third party uh, to to manage your systems for you, and you want to give them permission from out of their directory? Again, it says the user is being maintained, you know, at one location, but you're saying we're going to give permission to that user to my system as well through my directory. Um, and adding the users manually, now that gets really interesting. Um, we do have user tools uh, that you can use to uh, add users. 
and manage your users uh, through the Azure portal. Um, we do also have all tools in the Office 365 uh, arena that will let you manage your users. Um, if you're using directory sync, I'm going to go through this kind of fast. We talked about earlier for federation. Then you would actually be using your on-premises tools uh, to manage your users and, and push them to, uh, to into Azure Active Directory. But the other piece that people tend to forget about, and just so you know, is we have a complete API set so that you can programmatically, you could build your own user interface uh, around adding users that you want to give to your support department or perhaps your HR department. Hey, we hire a new employee. Or in fact, whenever they add a, a user to your HR system, uh, you can pick up that record. You can actually pick up that new ad uh, and programmatically add the user to your uh, Active Directory. Your Azure Active Directory. So though we have the full API set that you have access to. You can do it through UI, uh, or you can do it through the synchronization process. Yeah, when I was talking to you earlier, um, you had mentioned you were working on some Active Directory tools. Is there anything you want to share today? <laughs> That's a cat out of the bag. Yeah. Yep. Um, a couple partners of mine and, and some of my colleagues here have uh, similar situations. Like you're one of them. Um, mm-hmm. Where you know, the, your partners have run into to, uh, need for a graphical user interface around uh, recovering passwords or around adding users. Um, so I, I chose the opportunity that rather than build a, you know kind of a goofy little sample of, of how to log in um, or whatever, I thought we we built out a fully fledged service. It's going to be an Azure service that uh, you can download and uh, take the source. Rebuild it, test it, do whatever you need to do, and deploy it if you want to. And people can cons- within your system can consent to that application, and that application will provide the ability for administrators to add users, uh, for people to recover their password, and they'll get an email. So it, it's it's a complete example of a solution around how to do the multi-tenant uh, sign-in. Of course, I had to make multi-tenant to make it even more interesting. But multi-tenancy, so we support many companies' tenants connecting to the same tooling for the same application. Uh, you can brand it. It shows you about the different API calls you need to make for the what we call the graph API in Azure Active Directory to add users, change accounts, reset passwords. So it, it's a fully open source example. Uh, that people may want to use. And, and my goal is to have it posted in the next 15 to 30 days. I, I probably have to do a legal review. Um, they always want to check our stuff before we put it out to make sure I'm not giving away any secrets. But uh, it's all public API, so I, I expect no problems. Perfect. <clears throat> is there anything else you wanted to mention about Azure Active Directory? I mean, it's yeah, the thing I would add to everybody is it's work in progress. I mean, the the team, um, it's a great group of people. Um, I've had a chance to work with some of them on other projects in the past. Uh, they're they're really focused on making sure they meet you know uh, customer needs. Um, there's a lot of things going on right now that'll be coming out you know over time, um, and I think people really enjoy you know, like working with it. I, I think the team is really focused on making sure that the people who are building applications, the people who need authentication, authorization. Have the tools that they need, and you know if you don't see what you need today, um, we certainly have a way to provide feedback back to the team. But I want to encourage people to, to, to give it a try. I think there's too much investment by individual companies building homegrown solutions. Not only they have to build, but they have to maintain. And here's a case where the tooling out of the box is free until you need to add the premium features. And and why not take advantage of, of something that that does the basic plumbing for you and does a, this whole lot of heavy lifting that most people don't want to deal with. No, that's, that's such a good point that if there is something missing, there's probably other people out there that want it too. And it's just a matter of time before it gets added. People who know Microsoft from years ago, uh, probably are maybe surprised of recent of the last couple of years, the, the, the greater openness of the company to listen to feedback and to deal beyond windows, right? They say we accept Linux, everything else. I mean, the, the Azure Active Directory runs in, on Java. So you can log in from Linux, you can log in from mobile devices. It's pretty agnostic in, in that way. Um, and, and clearly the team listens. I mean, they do want the feedback and there's a, there's a lot of avenues for, for doing that. Pretty easy to find. So sorry, God, you were asking Carl. You know, um, we're going to move on to the Azure pick of the week. Um, obviously, uh, we're taking it after our topic, AAD. So if you want to learn more, we're going to have a bunch of uh, links in the show notes, kind of good overview on what Azure Active Directory is, some links, um, how to's, uh, so on and so forth with that. Um, our app of the week this week is Wi-Fi Dashboard. Um, you can check it out at wifi-dashboard.com. This is a uh, a Windows Store app. And I had come into a, a situation where I have a laptop that has occasional uh, Wi-Fi issues. And sometimes troubleshooting Wi-Fi issues isn't the easiest. 
And what this will do is um, it'll tell you if you're connected, how you're connected, um, what you're, if you're connected, your IP address. It'll tell you what kind of encryption you're using. And it even puts all of that color coded on your live tile as well. So I found it really handy just to get some of that basic information that might take you a little bit longer to get otherwise. And uh, uh, check it out. Um, Mark, uh, we can find you on Twitter at Mark, ups, uh, Mark Cooperstein. Yep. Uh, is there anywhere else that you'd like us to point you to? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give uh, you guys my uh, blog also. I'll be blogging about this tool here shortly um, that, that Jason was just talking about. And yeah, I invite people to put comments up there, whatever, um, or send me tweets. I'm happy to answer questions where I can. Um, other than that, I think that's it. I'll, I'll, we'll have my blog and we'll have my uh, Twitter account, and I think you guys should be good to go. All right. Um, and for the show, you can contact us uh, by email at feedback at msdevshow.com or and you can also subscribe to us by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Um, also, this week, Jason will be speaking at that conference hopefully. in Wisconsin Dells. <laughs> it, hopefully speaking. Hopefully my voice comes back by then. He'll be whispering at that conference. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, just like to remind everybody that we are uh, media sponsors. And as such, Jason's going to have a whole bunch of stickers there. So if you go find Jason, um, he'll have stickers. Uh, we've also have are going to have stickers on the Skyline Technologies booth. So if you're there instead, you can ask for some stickers from uh, them as well. Um, you can find me at WPDevGuy.com as well as Twitter.com slash Carl Schweitzer. Jason? My voice is totally gone, so I'm using a computer to speak. You can find me at YTechie.com or on Twitter at Twitter.com slash YTechie. As Carl mentioned, I'll be at that conference. And I'm looking forward to speaking to lots of smart people there. Thank you.